Good morning. My name is Nick. I'm one of the elders here at Restoration Church, together with Nathan, Joey, and Chris. Um, it's my pleasure to preach to you this morning. Kids, it's not Family Worship Sunday today, I've been told, so you should uh, go to Restoration Kids. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful to be here today. We thank you that we have the privilege to come into your presence and to hear about Jesus, who is the the light which shone into the darkness and in our own darkness, who is the truth which tears apart the lies that we swim in every day. We thank you that we get to see him today in this passage and we get to see his greatness and how worthy he is of our love. We pray that you guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by asking us, asking you, why you're here today. It's a Sunday morning, so we could be at home sleeping in, having brunch, hanging out with our friends. We could be reading an interesting book, hanging out on Twitter, or planning the future, working. Why would you come to church? This this over here is not a political movement, so it's not going to change your world. It's not a club, so you're not going to you don't you don't come here for fun. Are you having fun? We do not promote some important cause that's going to I don't know transform that neighborhood or that that poor country over there. We don't do any of that. And uh, if you look around carefully, you're going to see neither powerful people nor rich people in here. So you you could be going outside there and be busy trying to make money in what seems to be like a booming economy, right? You could go and solve some real problems like hunger, inequality, crime, or pandemics. There is a lot of messed upness in the world And we could try to do something about it rather than come here today, right here, right now. What did you come here to see and hear? Some of you came here because you felt the need maybe to reconnect with some old faith. Some of you came because somebody asked you to uh, and you thought maybe probably it doesn't hurt. Most of us probably came here because we wanted to hear about Jesus. And who is this Jesus? Is he a good teacher? Those we can find in schools, universities such as the one over here, or on motivational speaking tours. Is he a good doctor? Well, those you can find in hospitals. Is he a general? Those you find on army bases. I tell you why I came here today. I came here today to see a king. And more than a king, I came here to see and hear the king of kings. Who forgives his enemies to bring them into his kingdom. And who is worthy of our lavish and extravagant love. And that's what I want us to see today. 
before we get to our passage, which is in Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36, I, I want to discuss the context. I want to remind us what we've been doing. We've been going through the, through the gospel of Luke. And we've heard a number of sermons, and we're going to hear some more. But up to this point, we saw Luke telling us that he wrote this biography of Jesus to give us certainty about who Jesus is. And as we saw, he was born of the Holy Spirit and was introduced to the world by John the Baptist. He then went healing and raising people from the dead and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God in accordance with the prophecies that had been written about him. And as we saw last week, Jesus defies expectations. This Jesus defies expectations. He is the one who fulfills promises, but he is more. He is uncontrollable power, gentle mercy, and sovereign rule all in one. We also learned last week that Jesus is the standard for greatness. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived because he introduced Jesus to the world. And everybody in the kingdom of God, the kingdom which Jesus was preaching and inaugurating, is greater than John because they get to see and enjoy Jesus. And Jesus told us in Luke chapter uh, 7, verse 23, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Our lives, are, our lives are defined by whether or not we are offended by Jesus and at Jesus. They are not defined by our social status, the amount of money, whether we are strong or weak. They are not defined by whether we are healthy or ill. No, they are defined by whether we are offended at Jesus or not. And Luke tells us in chapter 7, verse 29 and, uh, verses 29 and 30, which you can find on page 864 of your pew Bibles, that all, when all the people heard his statements, essentially about, about John and what he was saying, and the tax collectors too, um, heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. We see, Luke tells us that the people who met Jesus fell in two, in two categories. The sinners and tax collectors on one hand, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on the other. The first group acknowledged Jesus' claims to greatness because they had received the baptism of John, which was the baptism of repentance. The Pharisees and the tax collectors, uh, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law rejected Jesus' claim to greatness because they did not repent due to their self-righteousness. Repentance is what we, in, in, church call turning back from a rebellious attitude and particular acts of rebellion, confessing these sins and aim, aiming to walk in submission to God. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We are told about John early in Luke in chapter 3. So the sinners and the tax collectors who accepted John's baptism for repentance accepted Jesus' claim to greatness. While the people who didn't rejected Jesus' claims because they either didn't care or they didn't think they needed Jesus. Friends, the reality is Jesus is the Lord, the King of kings. And our relationship with him turns on whether or not we accept that we are sinners and whether we turn away from our sin toward him. This is what this passage is telling us. 
We come to Jesus or we do not come at all. We come to Jesus in repentance or we do not come at all. The world is indeed divided in two groups of people. But contrary to our and the world's instincts, it's not divided into good and bad people, but into bad people who turn away from their iniquities and bad people who don't. The first group believe, follow Jesus, and are saved by his unmerited, amazing mercy. The second group reject him, follow whatever idol they feel more comfortable with, and are condemned by God's justice. And on these grounds, Jesus diagnoses the people around him the generation around him, to be full, like foolish, stubborn children who refuse to go along with what he says, no matter what, how he says it. We see this in verses 31 through 34. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, says Jesus, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating and drinking, came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. The generation refused the message, no matter how it was communicated. They didn't want to hear the message of the kingdom, and, uh, of, the kingdom of Jesus, and they found petty excuses. And sadly, as Jesus insinuates, they are the more numerous group. Notice the use of the expression, men of this generation, leading us to believe that the rejecting group was much larger than Jesus' accepting group. Jesus closes his diagnosis with Luke chapter 7, verse 35. Uh, Wisdom is vindicated by its children. In other words, even as the generation in which he lives is like foolish children, wisdom, the way of the good life, will be revealed and proven right by those who turn from their rebellion and believe in Jesus. And this brings us to today's passage. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. This is on page 864 of your pew Bibles. In this passage, Luke shows us in a vivid way the wisdom which is vindicated by its children and the foolishness which is condemned in its children. In this passage, we see the sovereign, forgiving king who deserves our extravagant, lavish love, encountering two sinners, one foolishly rejecting him and one wisely accepting him. In this vivid passage, we see an unrepentant heart and a repentant heart, both responding to Jesus, showing us the foolishness which brings destruction on one hand, as well as the wisdom which brings life on the other. Please read with me. I'm going to read, follow with me, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and uh, further. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, the woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that, she, that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for, he, for she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answering him, uh, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Three points today. I want to make three points today. One, Jesus graciously engages different people. Two, unrepentant hearts foolishly reject Jesus. And three, repentant hearts love him lavishly. The first thing, uh, the first thing I want us to consider this morning is that Jesus graciously engages different people. In the passage today, we see a Pharisee who wants Jesus in his home. We can speculate why. We don't know. We can only speculate, as the passage doesn't tell us directly. Maybe he wants to investigate Jesus' claims. Maybe he wants to make himself more popular in certain circles. We don't know. But the Pharisee was a member in good standing of society. He was educated. He was moral. He was somebody you would you know, want to hang out with. At the same time, Luke tells us about a woman who is a sinner. A woman of the city who is a sinner who hears that Jesus is going to be in the house of the Pharisee and then seeks Jesus out. She's described as a sinner. The implication being, good, the kids are not here, the implication being she was a prostitute. She was not clean. She was not moral. She was not a member in good standing of society. She was somebody to shun, to stay away from. Both want to see Jesus. The Pharisee may feel entitled due to his social condition. Uh, the, the woman probably feels completely unworthy. But both exhibit a certain interest and boldness. One to invite Jesus in his home. The other one to touch Jesus in a very lavish way, which would have been perceived as very awkward. Eh? If you were there, this would have been very, very awkward. And both get to meet Jesus. However, it's not due to their merit that they get to meet Jesus, but it is due to the grace of Jesus. Because the Jesus we see in this passage is not some random person. Remember the context. He is the Messiah, the anointed king, who is bringing the kingdom of God. From the perspective of the text, Jesus is much greater than they are. And all of us who have been in the presence of somebody greater than ourselves know you get to meet somebody greater due to that person's willingness. The smaller person gets to meet the greater person when the greater person makes time and permits it. Jesus didn't have to meet with either the Pharisee or with the woman. Jesus is so great he owes nobody a meeting. A Jesus who raises people from the dead by speaking a few words as he does in the first half of Luke 
doesn't have to meet with anybody. But he meets with these people. And he does it out of his grace. Friend, Jesus is so great, we have no right to meet with him. But he's gracious enough, he's going to meet with people like you and me. And this text in particular was written so we can encounter him. So let's take advantage of this opportunity and meet Jesus today. If you are not a Christian, do not delay and wait until you have more time or until you have solved this problem or another. You get to meet the king when he's willing to meet with you. Jesus is meeting you today, right here. You get to see him and you get to hear him. Now take advantage of of this opportunity and be changed. How many people wanted Jesus to come and dine with them and he never went? How many people wanted to touch him and he never, they never came close? The Bible tells us of all the prophets of old who wanted, longed to see and hear what Jesus had to say and they never did. Take advantage of the opportunity you have and meet Jesus today. Do not let pride or a false sense of security get in the way. He's somebody who is much greater, who holds your destiny in the palm of his hand and you might not get a second chance. Take advantage of the opportunity you have and meet Jesus today. Do not believe the lie according to which your shame and your guilt are so great that there's no chance for you. Here's somebody who can take away your sin and lift you up. The woman had been a prostitute, and yet she was forgiven, she was saved. And you are welcome to come to Jesus as well. If you are a Christian, you are in the family of God, And you can come to Jesus anytime. Do not delay then. Do not think to yourself, I can come anytime, so I'm going to delay because I have something else to do. Jesus gave you the right to come to him so you would come, not so that you would go about your life only to remember him when it's it's convenient. Either way, whether we are Christians or not, follow. we need to follow the example of the Pharisee and of the woman who seek Jesus out. Because Jesus is the king who graciously meets with all sorts of people. And when we meet Jesus, we we have to make a decision. When we encounter Jesus, we have to choose. How will we react? Our reaction will be one of two. One foolish and the other one wise. And I want us to see today that unrepentant hearts foolishly reject Jesus. Unrepentant hearts foolishly reject Jesus. We see this in the reaction of the Pharisee who rejects Jesus' claims. The Pharisee had recognized Jesus' claims, that, namely that he comes from God. But he rejects them. We are told that during the encounter, the Pharisee reached the conclusion Jesus could not come from God because he allowed himself to be touched so lavishly by a sinner. We see this in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The reasoning of the Pharisee is as follows. If Jesus comes from God, if Jesus is a prophet of God, he should know that the woman is a sinner. Everybody knows that. He should know that the woman is a sinner. So if he knew that, then he wouldn't associate himself with that. 
And since he associated himself with her, he can't possibly be a prophet. And since he can't possibly be a prophet, he cannot be more than a prophet. He cannot be the Messiah. This is the Pharisee's line of thought. And on the surface, the argument sounds reasonable, doesn't it? People who are holy should not hang out with sinners. I mean, a woman, the woman was a sinner. Imagine, imagine Jesus associated himself with some big Nazi, with some leader of the KKK, or with some drug lord out there. Surely a person with claims of being Messiah wouldn't associate himself with such a sinner, would he? Isn't that the point of all the Old Testament laws and of the purity laws? The Pharisee knows the law and he reacts accordingly. Or does he? Because if he had internalized the Old Testament, he would have realized that not only was the woman a sinner, but he was a sinner as well. So if it was wrong for the Messiah to hang out with her on grounds of her sin, it would have been wrong for the Messiah to hang out with him on grounds of his sin. The only way the Messiah could have hung out with a sinner like him, even less of a sinner than her, if we may say that, would have been if he had been clean somehow. But then couldn't the woman have been made clean also? And how could you tell which one was clean and which one wasn't? Maybe she had been forgiven. I mean, how do you know that she had not been forgiven? How can you tell who is forgiven and who is not? Jesus uses the parable to communicate exactly that. Jesus uses the parable to communicate that our love for Jesus is a reflection of how much we have been forgiven. He then uses this principle to show Simon the Pharisee that the woman is forgiven while he is not. Look with me at verses 40 to 47. And Jesus answering him, by the way, did you notice that the Pharisee was thinking stuff to himself? And yet Jesus answers him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say, teacher, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my my feet with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. There was a moneylender, had two debtors, who couldn't pay. Translated, Jesus is saying there are two sinners who couldn't pay for their sins. One with more sins, the other one with less, neither one could pay. The money lender forgives them both because they couldn't pay. Out of his graciousness, he forgives them. Translated, Jesus forgives them both because they couldn't pay. Their love for him is going to be proportional to how much they are forgiven. Who is forgiven much, loves much. Who is forgiven little, loves little. This means you can look at their love for the money lender to ascertain whether they were forgiven or not and how much they were forgiven. Jesus uses the parable to communicate this larger principle. 
and then applies this, this to his encounter with Simon and with the woman. One doesn't offer Jesus water for his feet, which would have been a common act of politeness. The other one washes his feet with her tears. One doesn't give him a welcome kiss. The other one kisses his feet. One doesn't pour oil on his head. The other one pours, um, the other one pours perfume on his feet. Other translations have perfume instead of ointment. So, so Jesus concludes Simon the Pharisee doesn't love Jesus much, whereas the woman loves him very much. And since Simon doesn't love Jesus, he must not have been forgiven. And since the woman loved Jesus a lot, she must have been forgiven in spite of her many sins. And if Jesus was merciful enough to forgive the woman, he would have been merciful enough to forgive the Pharisee as well. So that means that the Pharisee did not repent. He did not turn away from his sin to be forgiven. Simon doesn't love Jesus because Simon is not sorry about his sin to cry over it and come to Jesus in humility. Since he doesn't need, see his need for forgiveness at the hand of Jesus, he doesn't confess his sins to Jesus and does not love Jesus. We don't know why Simon is not sorry for his sin. It is likely, as the passage seems to suggest, without directly saying so, that Simon, like other Pharisees, is offended at Jesus because he's friends with sinners. They thought their good deeds acquitted them in front of God and that they didn't need mercy and that they could, couldn't possibly stand condemned on par with sinners. They thought the world was divided in good and bad people and that they were good. What is Whether Simon as an individual took offense at Jesus because he was a friend of sinners is less important. What is important is that unrepentant hearts reject Jesus. Unrepentant hearts reject Jesus. And it is foolish to do so. It is foolish to do so. We know Jesus is the God King because of all the miracles he did, of the message he preached, and ultimately due to his resurrection, Resurrection from the dead, whereby God himself gave his verdict on who Jesus was. God vindicated Jesus' claims. And yet, after this encounter with, with God, Simon doesn't hear those wonderful words, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you. He doesn't hear, go in peace. No, Simon has been left out. He's on his own. He needs to pay a debt he can't pay. There is no salvation for him, only punishment. So unrepentance is very, very foolish. Unrepentant hearts foolishly reject Jesus, not realizing we are all more sinful than we think and that there is no way in which we can pay back our debt. Simon does not turn to Jesus to ask for forgiveness and foolishly heads to destruction. How can we tell if we are unrepentant. Well, at one level, repentant people mourn over their sins, are sad over their iniquity, and turn from their rebellious acts. But Jesus says more here. We can tell by our love for Jesus. So do we love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to see him? Or are you indifferent towards him? Do you want to glorify him or do you want to glorify yourself? Do you think of yourself as superior to others? 
Do you love the people he loves? That is the church. Friend, do not allow your heart to be unrepentant. Leave your sense of superiority at the door. Confess your sins, cry over them, mourn over them, ask for forgiveness and turn away from them. Let us move from foolish unrepentance which will doom us and move to repentance and lavish love. Let us follow the example of the woman who shows us that repentant hearts love Jesus lavishly. Repentant hearts love Jesus lavishly. So next to the Simon the unrepentant, we have the repenting woman. And she really loves Jesus in an extravagant, lavish way. She wipes his feet with her tears. And as my wonderful wife mentioned to me yesterday, she must have, wiped, she must have cried a lot. <laughs> she dries his feet with her hair and then puts perfume on his feet. I mean, on his feet. Who does that? I mean, I, I don't wear perfume. Okay? And if I wore perfume, I would wear it on my upper body. I wouldn't wear it on my feet. So this extravagant, this out of the comfort zone affect, this is, this is extravagant, people. This is out of the comfort zone affectionate care. And her acts show this. Jesus is telling us that by looking at these actions that she, she performs, she is forgiven. We can say that she's forgiven and that her faith has saved her. So verse 48, right? He says, And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In verse 50. So the woman has a repentant heart and she is forgiven by Jesus. These verses provide, these verses that we just read, provide the assurance of forgiveness and salvation from the mouth of Jesus himself. In keeping with the parable, she believed before. She believed before and she was forgiven before but now she receives the assurance of forgiveness and of salvation. She believes that Jesus is the one against whom she has sinned and that can make her clean. And, and he's the one who can make her clean. Her faith leads her to repent and she is forgiven of her many, many sins. And this forgiveness leads her to lavish love. As Jesus told her, told us, who is forgiven much, loves much, who is forgiven little, loves little. And we saw earlier, as we saw earlier, people who turn away and who repent, who repent of their sins and follow Jesus are wise. They get to be forgiven, they get to see, to be with God, and they get to enjoy God. And just as the woman was forgiven of her many sins, we can also be forgiven if we follow in her footsteps of mourning over our sins. In faith, no matter how much we have fallen, no matter how big sinners we are, we can be forgiven if we believe that Jesus will forgive us and save us if we turn from our iniquities. So do we want to be forgiven? Or maybe maybe we think we don't need to because we are not that big sinners. The Bible is clear, however. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul tells us in Romans 3. In this parable, Jesus states that two debtors owe him different amounts, but neither can pay. So even if you don't consider yourself the biggest sinner in the world, you still cannot pay. 
friends, there are sinners and transgressors only on this earth. More specifically, sinners who cannot pay their debt. The only question is, do we turn away from that those sins in humility and confession or do we persist in them? Are we going to let Jesus' grace to big sinners offend us and reject Jesus' forgiveness just like the Pharisees? Or are we going to come to Jesus in repentance? And if we come to Jesus in repentance, we can walk in the footsteps of the woman and love Him lavishly because He forgave us more than we can pay. And Jesus is worthy of this lavish love. Know that Jesus appreciates what the woman does. He doesn't find it weird. He doesn't go like, oh, no, no, that's too much. I'm not worthy of that. Any one of us would have done that. He doesn't do it. He commends her. Because he's no ordinary king, but he is the king, the one and only son of God, who is the heir of creation and who is bringing in the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus dresses ordinarily. Yes, he enters into normal people's houses and dines with them. Yes, he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners, but he's no ordinary king. He is worthy of our overflowing, extravagant love because he is the forgiving king. Jesus is the money lender to whom we all more, we all owe more than we can pay. He's the one against whom people have sinned. We have sinned. We love, we owe him more than we can pay back, and yet this mighty king forgives. And he forgives our sins when we turn away from our rebellion and believe in him. And friends, contrary to our superficial popular culture, forgiveness is no small thing. It is easy, is it, is it easy for a father to forgive the rape of his daughter? Is it easy for a woman to forgive the murder of her son? Is it easy for a king to pass over betrayal and treason? Forgiveness is only easy for people who care about nothing. Jesus cares about us and he cares about his glory, which we have trampled upon with our transgressions and rebellion. We committed treason against him. Our sin, even when we hurt somebody else, is also and primarily against him because he's the creator. So forgiving our sin was very painful and it cost him a lot. He went to Jerusalem and instead of the glory he was owed, he received the punishment we deserved. And this is how he forgives sin. Though innocent, Jesus takes our shame, our guilt, our sin upon himself. And for those who, like this woman, believe and repent, he gives his forgiveness. And with his forgiveness, he gives us his positive acceptance. We can have peace. Go in peace, he tells her in verse 50. You have nothing to worry about anymore. You can live life fully now. We can enjoy Jesus and we can live in peace, even in spite of our circumstances. And we can love. Isn't that what life is supposed to be about? Friends, I know there are some here who struggle with certain sins or dirtiness that either we brought upon ourselves or other people brought upon us. 
And I know that some of, uh, some of us struggle with porn or lust, some of us struggle with greed, some of us with selfish ambitions, some of us with guilt due to uh, have maybe having performed an abortion. Some of us may, may have been taken advantage of. And some of us may struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness. I want us to see that the forgiving, forgiving king is here. If we confess our sins and turn away from them and put our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven and we can walk in peace. The evil one may attack us over and over again with the same sins, but we need to look to Jesus and remember that we are forgiven. We need to thankfully praise Jesus for his mercy while going in the opposite direction. No matter whether we feel forgiven or not, we should take our eyes off ourselves, meditate on his great holiness, which will lead us to meditate on his great forgiveness that he has accomplished for us, and that will make us, that will lead us to act with lavish acts of love out of gratitude. Forgiveness is a sovereign act by Jesus to make us clean, powered by his historical death on the cross and by his historical bodily resurrection. It is not an emotion or feeling. And beholding this wonderful, merciful action of Christ, we will respond with extravagant, outflowing acts of love. What are some acts of extravagant, lavish love that we can do? He's not around, so we cannot have him over for dinner and put perfume on his feet. What can we do? We can long for his presence and we can love what he loves. When you love something, you want to be with that person or do that thing. We all know what we're talking about. Love means preoccupation, attention, desire, delight. Love means patience and sacrifice. Love means desire to be in the presence more and more. As Christians, we have access to Him. So love means we come to Him in prayer and reading the Word. Love means we delight in His person, work, and accomplishments. Love means talking to other people about Him because He's so amazing. And we can also love what He loves. What does Jesus love? What does Jesus love? He loves righteousness, He loves justice, and He loves mercy. And as a king, he loves obedience. And finally, he loves his people from whom he, for whom he's given his life. And his people is the church. Not Restoration Church, not Temple Baptist Church, the church, the sum of all repentant, believing believers. And how can we love the church? We can love the church by seeking ways to serve and help the people in the church without expecting much in return. We can give of our time, energy, and money. We can clean the bathrooms, wash the dishes, serve at tables. We can disciple others and reach out to weaker members. We can seek the wayward. We can disciple, um, we, we can listen and cry with the broken and we can rejoice with the happy. Whatever it is, love gives just as the repentant woman of faith gave. Friends, I don't want us to hear these words as a to-do list. Jesus didn't come to us with a to-do list. He came to us with forgiveness and with love 
and he wants love. He's a person and he has feelings. Seek and long for Jesus. Love him lavishly with your attention, energy, time, and money. With everything you've got. And we can do all of those things lavishly today. Looking only to Jesus for our reward. We can do that today. Today is the perfect time to do that. And tomorrow, when tomorrow becomes today, is the perfect time to do that as well. One day he's going to come back and he's going to give us all those things that make life right. But we don't have to wait until then to love him lavishly because he's already done so much for us. And the reality is that he's not going to do what we want. Because he's the sovereign king. He has the right and the responsibility to do things as he sees fit. This will mean that sometimes he won't heal us. He won't get us out of poverty. He will let us be insulted or defrauded or persecuted. And he's going to let other people have the things we want. And sometimes he's going to be gracious to people who hurt us. And sometimes he's going to give more grace to people who are worse than us and to people who we do not think much of. But he's still worthy of our lavish love because he gave himself up for us. He's forgiven us so much. Friends, I am thankful you came here today. And you heard a sermon that's unrelated to most of the problems you face. I did not tell you how to, how to deal with your health issues, with your job problems, with your broken relationships, or any of your various fears. I didn't tell you you are a good person and that you have a bright life in front of you. But it wasn't wasted time. On the contrary, I think it was some of the best time you've had. <laughs> because you got to meet Jesus. He's the one who says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And this Jesus has the power to make everything right. But he cannot make life right without addressing the source of our problems. Namely, our bankrupt relationships with God. When John the Baptist asked Jesus earlier, Are you the one? Are you the one we've been expecting? Meaning, are you the one who's going to make life right for us? Jesus made a lot of things right on the spot. But he didn't make them all right. He went further. He went to to the cross. He bore our sin on the cross and he resurrected to life, making a way for us to have a love relationship with God and to eventually enjoy, to eventually enjoy a made right world. How will we respond? We have a choice. We can turn our backs on him because he won't do what we want. Or in faith, we can turn our face to him, our backs to our iniquities and rebellion, and love him lavishly as he deserves. What will we choose? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who is the sovereign king, who became the forgiving king, and who will one day come to make all things right.
We pray, Lord, that while we wait for him, patiently and with faith, we would love him lavishly. As we have seen in this passage, and bring him great joy through our actions of love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.